Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, as we look at this very important text of Scripture, we ask you that you would make yourself known to us, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold you in new and fresh ways, that we might have our ears open, that we might hear your voice, that you'd open our hearts to believe, perhaps with a new depth, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, the, the depth of the, the love that you have for us. And that, God, you would take this text, especially this text, and help us to apply it to our lives, to glorify you in the world that we live in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, sometimes, I don't know, this is maybe a confession to you, I'm not sure. Sometimes, I wonder how I got here. Now, I'm not talking about living in Vancouver, and I'm not talking about standing here. I'm very well aware of how I arrived at this particular place. I'm talking about how I became a Christian. Uh, I wonder how on earth I ended up being a follower of Jesus. It definitely was not my idea. And every time I consider it, and I'm just kind of caught afresh with the reality that I am a follower of Jesus, that I am known by the God of the universe, I stand in awe of him a little bit more every single time. You ever think about that? You might have the same thoughts that I'm having. How have you ended up in this room on this Sunday morning? Like, how did all of us come to this place where we love and serve a Jewish carpenter rabbi from rural Galilee who was born over 2,000 years ago? You ever think about that? This is crazy. The whole thing's crazy. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm sure you have some sense of how you've arrived at this place of belief. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want you to know that it's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident. It's actually part of your story. And that at some point in the future, you're going to look back on this season of your life and you're going to see that God was doing like 10,000 things in your life that you didn't know about and you're going to actually see it and you're going to smile because you're going to recognize what he was bringing you through at this point. Some of you were like me and you came to faith in your adult life and you didn't grow up in the church, so it's kind of a foreign thing to you. Some of you grew up in the church and so the Bible and Jesus and the whole deal very familiar to you. You had parents who discipled you or, or whatever the case might have been. For me, there was a point when I wasn't a Christian and there was a day and then I was a Christian. I remember it very distinctly. I can mark it on the calendar. It was a then and a now. For some of you, it was very gradual. You came to Christ over years and you're not exactly sure where you can pinpoint when you came to believe maybe, but you definitely entered into that belief. question I want to ask is, have you done that generational family tree thing with your faith? Like if John said his parents and his grandparents were Christians, does he know how his grandparents became Christians? Does he know how his great-grandparents became Christians? 
Do you, do you kind of plot the course on the way back and sort of see how did you come to faith? Like I know the woman who led me to Christ. I know my friend who was evangelizing me very quietly in the way that he lived his life. I know how they came to faith. I know what their families were all about. I was a new Christian, but they weren't. I'm fascinated by all this stuff because every story in this room is a story of God's grace. Some of you have families that, that were fleeing war and poverty and abuse, and some of your stories, you, you've got a college roommate or a friend or a coworker who was a Christian who just invited you to attend something or, or to think about something maybe over lunch. Others of you have these stories of, of immigrating to Canada and being evangelized on the way by people who actually helped you resettle in Canada. Others of you can trace generations of Christianity in your lineage, and maybe your family were the ones who were doing the evangelizing of the rest of us. I, I don't know. My point is, just like when I came to Christ in 01, each and every one of us have a story where someone communicated the gospel of Jesus to us in a way that made sense, in a way that we could understand. At some point in our lives, someone loved us enough to share the gospel with us in a way that we could comprehend it. That's called evangelism. Sharing the gospel of Jesus. Sharing the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is God, that God saves sinners in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, my friend Shayla is always quoting a pastor friend of ours who says evangelism is joining a conversation that the Holy Spirit is already having with another person. Evangelism is joining a conversation that the Holy Spirit is already having with another person. So at some point in our life, somebody decided to take a risk and actually join the conversation that the Holy Spirit was already having with us. That's how we became followers of Jesus. And so the text that we're looking at today, what it's going to do is actually help our thinking and, and help us uh, think about how we posture ourselves in this way that we're called to live with evangelism in our life. We want to be the kind of people, we want to be the kind of community that can help introduce people to Jesus and all kinds of people to Jesus. And because of that, I think this text is very, very important for us. Okay, three points as we look at the scripture today. Three points. Servant-hearted freedom, evangelistic accommodation, and comprehensive proclamation. Servant-hearted freedom, evangelistic accommodation, and comprehensive proclamation. And if those three points don't make any sense to you right now, that's okay. That's my job for the next half hour or so. Let's look at the text. Servant-hearted freedom. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Hey, Paul the Apostle, he's the guy writing this letter. He's in the middle of some thoughts that we've rudely interrupted him on because of the way that we've broken down the text, but he's in the middle of a thought where he's talking about the freedom that he has to set aside his rights, to forego what is owed to him for the sake of the gospel. And he's making the point that he is no longer in bondage to anyone. He is free. No human being can say they own Paul. He is a free man, but, but he is walking in submission to the Lord. And because he is walking in surrender and submission to the Lord of the universe, he now bears a responsibility to preach the gospel to the nations, including the people that he's writing to in Corinth. There's a point to the freedom he has. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. He is free from bondage to any human being who would seek to control him, but he's free to then become a servant or a slave to all. 
so that he might win more of them to Jesus. He's talking about winning people to Christ. He's talking about gaining them for the kingdom. He is talking about evangelism, bearing witness to the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, that he might gain more people for the sake of the kingdom of God. See, Paul's life was transformed with a radical encounter he had with Jesus. And now, because of that, he lives his whole life as a servant to all because he wants to win more people to Jesus. This is life. He has total freedom, but he is willing to set aside his rights and become a servant to all for the sake of others. Who does he sound like? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus Christ had total freedom, but he willingly set aside his rights and did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, and he took the form of a servant, humbling himself in his obedience to the will of God the Father, so much so that he laid down his life for the sake of us all. Look at the text. Verse 19 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This is the reality of what life looks like when you have had a saving encounter with Jesus. You know you are now in on the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity. And you just want more people to come with you. You ever meet the people who are really, really passionate about dessert? They go, you you got to try this. I'm like, I don't actually have to try this. I'm trying not to be fat right now. And I had a couple of friends who just had heart attacks, and I'm thinking about that. They're not that much older than me, and I'm just trying not to. But you have to try this dessert. I'm like, no, I have to serve Jesus. But I appreciate your evangelistic zeal for the decadent chocolate cake that you are speaking of. In a moment of weakness, I will order some, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a must in there. See, we want people to be included on things that are wonderful. Jesus is wonderful. I want more people to know him. The end of this whole little section in 1 Corinthians, it kind of runs from chapter 8 to, to the beginning of chapter 11. At the very end of this little section, 1 Corinthians 10, 32 to 11, 1, it says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul in his evangelism is actually seeking to imitate Jesus. And he's calling us to follow him. Jesus is motivated by love, and he selflessly gives up his own life and his own privileges for the sake of saving others. Again, the pattern that Paul is following, it's the pattern that he calls us to. It's the way of Jesus. That's what we're called to. Servant-hearted freedom. Secondly, we must understand evangelistic accommodation. Evangelistic accommodation. Verse 20 says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. 
To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself, not myself. This is, this is awesome. I love it when I can't read the Bible. Verse 20. It says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Okay, depending on how you slice it here, there are three or four categories of people that he has listed. He's talking about the Jews, he's talking about those who are under the law, those who are not under the law, and the weak. You can kind of group the first two together, probably. It's the way I'm looking at it. He's talking about the Jews and those who are under the law, then those who are outside the law, the law of God, and then those who are weak. Now remember, he's writing to a group of people that he spent a couple years with, and, and when he was in Corinth, they know that he definitely evangelized Jews. In fact, some of the people in the church are Jewish. They followed Jewish laws, and then he evangelized them, and they came to see that Jesus was their Messiah that they had long been waiting for, and he won them to Christ. He definitely evangelized Gentiles. They are non-Jews. They are those who were outside the law, and he evangelized them that he might win them to Christ. And he definitely evangelized the weak. Yeah, I think in this text, they are those who are overlooked by others because of their social status or their poverty. So he's talking about slaves and the poor and the marginalized, and he evangelizes the weak that he might win them to Christ. So broadly speaking, you, you kind of think of it like this. He was committed to accommodating the unique particularities of each group so that he could win them to Christ. He was accommodating the unique particularities of each group so that he could win them to Christ. This is the guy who was just as comfortable sharing the love of God that he has experienced with the really religious person who's quoting the Bible at him. He's comfortable sharing it with the totally irreligious person who's living like hell. And he's totally comfortable sitting down with somebody that everybody else in the culture overlooks because of their low status. He's comfortable with all that. He's all things to all people that by all means he might save some. Verse 20 he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Okay, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might not know this, but Paul was Jewish. So this sounds really weird. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. But you're like, Paul, you're literally Jewish. <laughs> hey, let me say something. When you have an encounter with Jesus, when you hear the good message of the gospel, you hear that God saves sinners. When you realize and admit that you are a sinner in need of that saving and you see that God is the only avenue to that salvation, everything else changes. Everything else falls away. The crucified and risen Jesus becomes the new center of your life and everything else just gets pushed to the periphery. You might even think of it this way. When Christ becomes the center of your life, everything else just sort of melts off to the edges. And later on, 20 years later, 30 years later, you're like, I used to be really into that thing that I don't really care that much about. I used to base my whole identity on the way that I, I wore that hat. I had that hat. It was so cool when I wore that hat. I forgot about it. Whatever it is, when Christ becomes the center of your life, you're changed. 
This is what Paul's talking about. He's so transformed by the gospel that like 20 years before he writes this letter, he has an encounter with Jesus. And now he's so changed that he says he needs to become as a Jew to reach the Jews, even though he's Jewish. There's a, a scholar on all the letters of Paul. He's a biblical theologian, but he's kind of a big deal on all the letters that Paul wrote. And he's written a lot of books about Paul. His name's N.T. Wright. He said, being a Jew was no longer Paul's basic identity, for that is no longer who he was at the deepest level. Who he is at the deepest level, who, who is that now? He's a follower of Jesus. He's free from all, but servant to all for the sake of the gospel. He no longer needs to hang on to any of those identity markers from his past, the things that used to be so vital to him and so important to him that he based his fundamental identity upon at one point in his life as a Jewish man. He doesn't need to hang on to those things anymore. He's no longer consumed with the food laws and circumcision and Sabbath and special festivals. Those are things that have, in some sense, melted to the edges. They're very important, but they're not his primary, primary identifying marker anymore. And, and here it is. This is important. All that said, when he's with the Jewish people, he's fine to accommodate himself to them so that he can gain a hearing of the gospel. His whole guiding principle is that he is willing to do anything short of sin to win them to Jesus. He's not going to lie. He's not going to go, yeah, yeah, you really do need to do all that stuff to be saved. Or He's not going to say any of those things. But he's willing to accommodate himself to a, a, the particularities of a group that he might gain a hearing for the gospel. He's trying to evangelize the Jews, and when he's doing that, he becomes as a Jew. Look at the second half of verse 20. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's talking about the Jewish law. So when he's evangelizing Jews under the law, even though he's not under the law, he's not going to try and make them eat food that their law prohibits. He's not going to try to get them to work with him on the Sabbath or something crazy like that. He will accommodate himself to them on things that don't ultimately matter so that they will listen to him about the one thing that ultimately does matter. One time some of my friends, um, they lived in this, there's a bunch of guys lived in a house and they decided they were going to have a luau. They were going to have a Hawaiian-themed party to celebrate something or other. I don't know what they were doing, but they used to throw huge parties. And they wanted to use it as an opportunity to invite all their neighbors. And they said, we're going to go into the neighborhood and invite all our neighbors to come. And then they also invited a couple hundred of their closest friends. And then they had a party. And, and one of the things they did is they dug a pit in the front lawn. And then they roasted a pig in there for a couple days or whatever, like overnight. They cooked a whole pig. And they went to the neighborhood and they invited all their friends. And said, come on over. We're going to be serving up this pig roast at this luau. It's going to be wonderful. I think it was a fundraiser for missions or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. But they couldn't figure out why one of their neighbors wasn't super keen on joining them for the meal until somebody reminded them that Jewish people don't eat pork. Okay. If you're hoping to build community with your Jewish neighbors, probably inviting them to a pig roast on the Sabbath is not going to win. Okay? Okay. okay. Great intention, poor execution. Okay? Evangelistic accommodation matters. Yeah? Which is why you eat beef. The moral of the story. 
As an Albertan, I can always bring it back to my rural roots. Paul applies the same principle to the irreligious in this text, those outside the law, and to the weak, the social outcast, meaning that he's willing to socially accommodate them as long as it didn't lead him to sin. He's going to socially accommodate them so he can gain a hearing for the gospel. He, He will accommodate himself to things that don't ultimately matter so that they will listen to him about the one thing that ultimately matters. Look back at the text, the second half of verse 22. It says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Does this mean that Paul was willing to change the message of the gospel to get in the door? Different people, different backgrounds. They think different things are important, so Paul just deviates from the message of the gospel a little bit to try and get in the door. No! No! He's adapting the method, not the message. His gospel is faithful. His approach is flexible. It's very important that you hear that. You've got to hear me. For 2,000 years, all kinds of people from all kinds of cultures and all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of stories from all different generations speaking all kinds of languages have been introduced to Jesus in all kinds of ways because Christians are supposed to be guided by this verse of Scripture where Paul says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This gospel is for the really religious person. For the utterly irreligious person. For the social outcast and pariah. And everybody in between. The gospel of Jesus is so totally comprehensive that it can be comprehended by all kinds of people. Man, God is so good to us. I want to remind you of something. This is what Paul is going to say at the end of the section in this letter. Again, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's example is Jesus. Paul's suggesting that we accommodate some different cultural and relational practices in order to gain a hearing for the gospel so that we can win people to Christ, so that we can see them saved and blessed and transformed in Jesus' name. It's not just practical. It's not just rational. It's not just sort of a logical accommodation of different cultures and practices so we can be really nice and get our foot in the door. No, it's, it's all those things. But it's mostly what God did for us in sending us his son. Femi Perkins, she said, although it is possible to treat this strategy of accommodating oneself to diverse audiences as simple pragmatism, early Christian writers recognized that Paul was referring to the condescension of God in becoming human. You got to think about this. All revelation, all of the revealing of God, everything we know about him is him from an infinite perspective accommodating himself to our finite minds. All of our understanding of God is him accommodating himself to us that he might win us. So in his evangelism, Paul follows the example of Jesus. 
But I really desperately want you to know that this is only possible because of the overwhelming, comprehensive, overwhelmingly comprehensive nature of the gospel. Paul can only say, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He can only say that if the nature of the gospel is universally applicable, and it is. The gospel's for all people who've done all things. This is not a half measure. Paul's totalizing the effect of the gospel of Jesus on the world and, and, and its message that changes lives in comprehensive ways one life at a time. I said the gospel of Jesus is so totally comprehensive that it can be comprehended by all kinds of people, but, but here's what you need to know. Here's where you come in. You need to apply the principle of your evangelism here. You need to apply this to the way that you share your faith with people to make the gospel comprehensible. The gospel is comprehensive in that it is for all people, and it can be comprehended by all kinds of people. But we have to make the gospel comprehensible. Anytime we want to communicate the gospel to people, we need to contextualize the message of the gospel so it might be heard. Tim Keller said, sound contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. You now hear me, because it's important that we contextualize the gospel faithfully. Are there limits to our accommodation? Of course. If you've been reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 up until now, you know there's lots of limits to accommodation. Paul is adapting his method, not his message. His gospel is faithful. His approach is flexible. So on one hand, if you adapt the message so that your culture understands it, so the culture you're speaking to will listen, okay? you can adapt it in such a way that you actually veer off the road of faithfulness into the ditch. You can make it so palatable to culture that it doesn't sound anything different than the culture. That's one ditch you can drive into. We call that over-contextualization. It's compromising the message of the gospel. Listen, it never leads to gospel transformation. There are churches currently over-contextualizing the gospel to the point where outsiders look at it and go, they don't seem any different than me. All right, over-contextualized. On the other hand, if you refuse to be flexible with the approach that you take, in faithfully sharing the gospel. You can sound so foreign and so alien to your culture that nobody is going to be able to understand it, which means you're driving into the other ditch on the other side of the road of faithfulness and you're under-contextualizing. This also never leads to gospel transformation. Nobody ever hears. You can err in both ways. See, in John chapter 17, Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. Over-contextualization means you are of the world, just like the world. There's really no differentiation between Jesus' church then and the culture around them. That's over-contextualization. Under-contextualization means you're so alien in the way that you talk about God that you're not rightly in the world. You're not present to bless them with the gospel. See, faithful contextualization means you are in the world, but not of the world. Just like Jesus. 
Paul is absolutely unwavering in his gospel message. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love this. You know that thing where it says a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles? That stumbling block is scandal on. It's like a scandal. All he's saying is that if there's going to be offense in our evangelism, make sure that's the only offense. Make sure that's the only stumbling block. It's a huge stumbling block. Hi, I'd like to introduce myself to you. My name is Brett. You're a sinner. Every good thing you've tried in your life has failed to save you. All of your good efforts, all of your good intentions to do good in this world are not good enough to stand before a righteous and holy God at the end of your life. If you'd like to, I'd like to tell you about how Jesus will welcome you anyways. People are like, just, you know, just trying to sit in the hot tub at the rec center, man. Just... That's offensive. Unless you got ears to hear it. Unless you're just joining a conversation the Holy Spirit's already been having with someone. Then it's good news. <laughs> Let's just make sure that's the only offensive thing we have to say. Let's make our offense the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Paul's unwavering in his message of the gospel and Paul is unwavering in the moral expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. He's already addressed all this stuff in the letter, but he's talked about the unity of the church. He says, all your division is wrong because you're people of the gospel. If you're gospel people, all your division's wrong. He's already addressed the fact that they are just sexually immoral and there's some disastrous stuff happening in their church. He calls them out on it, calls them to repent. He says the way they relate to social status in the city is ungodly and non-kingdom centered. It is non-gospel centered. They need to rethink that because their status is in Christ. He says, you prefer yourself over others, but you're supposed to be preferring others over yourself. You're supposed to be rejecting idols and all of that. There's no compromising on what he has in place for the effects of the gospel transformation worked in the life of the church. That offense turns into an entire way of life. We're called to. Paul does not go around accommodating false teaching or anything else that compromises the witness of the gospel in this world. But with regard to everything else, it doesn't matter. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Let me come at it from a different angle. That's servant-hearted freedom. That's evangelistic accommodation. And third, let's talk about a comprehensive proclamation. Let's look at it from this different angle. There's a little booklet called The 3D Gospel, Ministry in Guilt, Shame, and Fear Cultures. It's written by a guy named Jason Georges. I was asking Kendra some questions one day, and she's like, have you read this book? And I said, no, I should. And then I did, and it's great. Thank you, Kendra. 3D Gospel. In that book, he talks about groupality, which is like personality, but for a group of people. You have a personality. There are groups of people who have groupality. Groupality is the sum total of the physical, mental, emotional, and social characteristics of a group. It's how a group thinks. He's making some broad generalizations in the book, but I think it's really, really helpful. Just so you know, any short book that's like 60 or 70 or 80 pages long is going to make some giant generalizations. 
I'm preaching sermons that are, by God's grace, around 40 minutes. I'm going to make some generalizations. But if what you hear about what I'm saying, and all you can sit there and go is, well, what about this, what about that? No, you're, you're missing it. Okay? The book has some generalizations, but the point is really, really helpful. He said this, Christian missiologists, just stop there, missiologists is somebody who studies the doctrine of the mission of God. They're, they're studying how we can do evangelism and mission really well. Christian missiologists identify three responses to sin in human cultures. Guilt, shame, and fear. These three moral emotions have become the foundation for three types of culture. One, guilt-innocence cultures are individualistic societies, mostly Western, where people who break the laws are guilty and seek justice or forgiveness to rectify a wrong. Two, shame-honor cultures describe collectivistic cultures common in the East, where people shamed for not fulfilling group expectations seek to restore their honor before the community. And three, fear-power cultures refer to animistic contexts, typically tribal or African, where people afraid of evil and harm pursue power over the spirit world through magical rituals. Again, there's some generalizations in here, but listen. These dominant ideas in differing cultural settings form our groupality. And just so you know, if your response to this was, well, nobody tells me how I think about this, I'm my own person. Okay? That's how you know you're part of a Western individualistic culture. So if that was your response while you're listening to it, welcome. Happy to have you. And what's my point? Well, the gospel speaks to all three. The gospel deals with guilt, the gospel deals with shame, and the gospel deals with fear. But unless you know who you're speaking to, and you have in some way, shape, or form set aside your own default way of thinking that comes from your groupality, from the group that you are most prominently from, none of us only have one response. It's always layered and it's always multifaceted. But your primary way of thinking, you have to set that aside at times to understand how other people might be thinking. You have to accommodate yourself to their understanding of the world. And unless you do that, you might be preaching truth to somebody who literally can't understand what you're saying. It's like your radio is just turned to the wrong frequency. It's a little bit off. You're like, yeah, there's something there. <laughs> just a little not quite dialed in. See, the gospel of a crucified and risen Jesus deals with all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our fear. But if we want to communicate the comprehensiveness of that gospel, we need to understand who we are speaking to. We need to dial into the right frequency so that we can gain a hearing for the gospel. That's what it means to become all things to all people, that by all means, we might save some. See, on the cross, Jesus Christ died to atone for your sin. He took upon himself the guilt for all of your sin. And when you repent and you turn to follow him, he gives you a right standing before God and you are forgiven. You are made clean and the stain of that guilt is removed. 
in and through the work of Christ, is, it is by grace and through faith in Christ, you have redemption, you have the forgiveness of your sins. On the cross, Jesus Christ died to atone for your sin. He took upon himself the shame for all of your sin, and when you repent, of every time that you failed God, every time that you let him down and you dishonored him with the way that you were living and you turned to follow him, you need to know that Jesus has made a way for you to be restored into right relationship with God. God does not turn his face away from you. He is not ashamed of you, but he calls you by his name. You are his, and he is yours, and this is your family. He is your heavenly father, and he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. On the cross, Jesus Christ died to atone for your sin. Where you were overcome by the temptation of the evil one and you sinned, Jesus was not overcome. And when he went to the cross, he disarmed the powers and the authorities and he made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them in the cross. And when he rose again from the grave in power, having defeated Satan and sin and death and hell and the grave. And he offers you who will repent and who believe in the overcoming power of the Holy Spirit. He offers you that same power that you might receive it. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can reside in you. He gives you power to resist the enemy of your soul and he gives you power to obey all that God commands. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a multifaceted gospel. Look at Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. The gospel is comprehensive. It's multifaceted. And in reality, all of us need all three aspects of this that I've just proclaimed were, were accomplished for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We all need all of it. But the reality is, we're probably going to come in the door of a primary one associated with our groupality. But I want you to hear me that the only way that we have come to believe any of it is because someone else was committed to communicating in a way that we could comprehend. In some way, every single one of us who believes this gospel, we can trace our spiritual family tree back to somebody who was committed to sharing it with us in a way that we could understand. Somebody who had the boldness to see if maybe they should join a conversation the Holy Spirit was already having with us. They took a risk. They thought it might ruin my working relationship with this person, but I'm going to take a shot. And you trace your spiritual lineage back through them. Christ City, can you imagine what God would do in the church of Vancouver if we all set aside our preferences for the sake of others? If we all set aside our freedoms so we could be servants of all? 
Can you imagine what this city would be like if we, even just us, choose today to become all things to all people that by all means we might save some? Oh, what God might do. Would you stand and respond with me today?